So good evening. This evening I'm going to talk about the the art of solitude. And I want to begin with where the Chan or Son or Zen tradition begins. Not historically, that's another story. But it begins by going back to where the Buddha began. And I think this is probably characteristic of any kind of reform movement. When a tradition becomes somewhat sclerotic or overly concerned with academic scholarly matters becomes preoccupied with the number of angels you can fit on the head of a pin or their Buddhist equivalents. That often leads to a kind of rupture or break where there is felt quite deeply, quite emotionally that the tradition has somehow become so removed from the actual living concerns of those men and women it purports to serve that it reaches breaking point and there's a collapse, a breakdown. We see it very much in the Protestant Reformation in Christianity. And I think in many ways the, the Zen tradition um, begins with a similar kind of rupture or break. Um, a questioning, a suspicion about the authority of priests and scholars and theologians and so on. And a return to the primary questions that lay at the source of the tradition in the first place. And in the case of Buddhism, of, of course, this goes back to Gautama's questions about birth and sickness and aging and death. The primary existential issues that we all face and seek to come to terms with. And that question, or those questions, uh, remain with him through his different uh, quests, studying with different teachers, doing different kinds of meditation practices, um, experimenting with asceticism. And although the texts don't tell us this, it seems fairly clear that he would have explored all manner of, of options that were available to him in his day. He would have spent a lot of time discussing, debating, arguing, listening to what others had to say. But at a certain point, all of those avenues that he had pursued likewise led to a kind of dead end. And this 
is the moment in which he then withdraws from those other people who are also withdrawn from the world and sits beneath this famous tree and effectively comes back to the very core of his own experience, his own existence, and seeks to come to terms with it entirely by himself. And this, I think, is a fairly good um, uh, story that recounts the movement to increasing degrees of solitude. So he moves from the, the busyness of his family and his society. He moves into the company of other ascetics and monks and wanderers. And then he moves away from that company. And I think what is particularly striking about the, this final move is at least in the way it's represented, um, a deepening um, of his own sense of being alone with these questions, with the fact of his own existence, with the fact of his breathing in and breathing out. And what happened in China around the sixth, seventh centuries, is that uh, people, maybe most of them were monks, we don't really know, likewise felt that the company of the professional uh, Buddhists, uh, and Taoists too perhaps, had also become somewhat stultifying, somewhat limiting. And some of them then said, okay, let's go back to, let, let's not just follow the teaching of the Buddha as recorded in the texts. Let's actually seek to emulate what the Buddha did. In other words, to return to his story, his biography. And in this case, part company, not with other ascetics and wanderers from Brahminism and Jainism and so on, but to actually part company with, with the Buddhist fold and to just sit, not necessarily beneath a tree, but basically to just sit down and start again. Leave aside all of this Buddhist philosophy and doctrine and psychology, however inspiring and insightful it might be. But if it doesn't actually speak to our condition here and now, then what real value does it have? Maybe consolatory, but does it really address the existential condition in which we find ourselves in now? So the Son tradition or it was Chan then being in China, is a return to these primary questions. 
And that, those primary questions are not being asked in um, a debating courtyard or a monastery, but they're being asked in the depths of one's own solitude. Now, solitude here is not just about um, being physically removed from other people. That's part of it. But solitude itself has something uh, deeply existential about it. Solitude is an existential condition. I'm going to read a few passages from Shantideva, who's a Buddhist monk, poet, who lives about 1,500 years after the Buddha. But he says this very well. He says, no matter who surrounds me on my deathbed, the severing of life will be felt by me alone. And it's a very powerful image. And we can quite easily imagine such situations. We may have even been in such situations once, uh, our, our, ourselves, standing around the bed of someone beloved who is clearly dying and at a certain point will breathe out her last breath. And there's something profoundly moving about that experience for those of us who are witness to it. But none of us can actually share in what the severing of life, the breathing out of the last breath, is felt, uh, how that is felt by the person who actually undergoes it. So solitude, in this sense, uh, taps right down into the core of our innermost sense of being the person I am, my self-awareness, my self-consciousness. Elsewhere in his writing, Shantideva says, I was born alone and I will die alone. At these two key moments of birth and death, we are utterly alone. We then come into the world, and in coming into the world, we come into relationships with others. But at the beginning and at the end, we're all by ourselves. And in some ways, the retreat that we're on is um, a way of, of emulating that birth-death experience. It's coming into a place like this, or in traditional Buddhist cultures, it's going off into the forests, going into the mountains, going into a hermitage, all of which are still values that are deeply honored in all the Buddhist traditions, and Zen have certainly no exception there. But if you really want to get into your practice, you go off somewhere to be very much alone. Shantideva does the same. In his account of the Bodhisattva's way of life, um, 
when he finally decides he's going to act on his altruistic um, motivation to become enlightened for the welfare of others, what he does is retreat into the wilderness, into the forests. And he says, once he's got to this remote part of wherever it was he went, he says, befriending no one, begrudging no one, my body dwells in solitude. I am already counted as a dead man. There will be no mourners at my grave. You can't, in a sense, withdraw much further from society than that. But what I feel speaks perhaps to us is that in some ways we're following in his footsteps. We're also retreating. We're also entering into a space in which we stop talking, in which we cut ourselves off from the inputs from our society. And in a sense, metaphorically of course, um, we somehow die to the world for these seven days. And it's under these conditions that we then found or ground our reflections, our meditations, our practice uh, in our innermost solitude. I think the art of solitude, the art of learning how to live in such a space, is basically the art of learning how to live with our own birth and our own death. Uh, the, the, the existential condition in which we find ourselves now. And so this disengagement from the world, from other people, is a situation that, as one philosopher put it, allows the mind to wander along its pathways alone. And there's a, there's a very real sense of freedom here. Uh, freedom um, in which we can be pretty confident that, that we're not going to be interrupted. We're free to pursue our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own emotions, our concerns, our fears, our desires, whatever's going on within us. And there's a possibility here to be able to do that without feeling that, oh, at five o'clock I've got to go and see someone or I've got an appointment, or whatever it might be. When we come into a retreat like this, to a place like Gaia House, um, it might initially feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, we wonder what we're doing here. We wonder if we might have made a big mistake. But once we settle in, we may begin to appreciate the extraordinary freedom that this kind of situation affords us 
the freedom to be truly alone. Sorry, a freedom to be truly alone. To be alone with our own thoughts, with our own concerns, in a way that nobody's going to, to bother us. We can pursue these as we see fit. We have the leisure to do that. And we have lots of time too. Particularly, I think, at the beginning of a retreat, it's important to, to be grateful for the amount of time that we've created for ourselves. It's our time to do with as we feel fit. And that's very much what a retreat is about. It's a time for attention and presence. But it's a mistake, I think, to conceive of solitude as a kind of introspection. And I think when we talk in terms of meditation and attention and mindfulness and solitude, it's quite natural for us to think that this all has to do with looking deeply inside ourselves. That might be part of it. But what is striking about accounts from those who have lived solitary lives, have spent months or years in solitude, is that their reports very often recount an absorption, a fascination, a wonderment, an enjoyment of the natural world. One thinks perhaps of one of our most well-known solitaries of recent history, um, Thoreau and he, uh, at Walden Pond. And when you read Thoreau's writings, you don't have the sense at all of someone who spends his whole time just looking into his mind. But you find that this solitude allows him to be more totally and fully participant in the natural world around him. The lake, pond by the way, it's an American pond, it's more like a lake. When I first went to Walden Pond, I expected it to be like a British village pond, <laughs> whereas it's a couple of kilometers across. But you have these wonderful accounts of his... Um, his surroundings, his observations of nature, the birds and the trees and the flowers and the plants, which he becomes enormously intimate with. Or if you think of some of the, the poetry that we find in Zen, of Basho, for example, uh, the solitude that he, ex he lives uh, opens up the world for him, particularly the observations of nature in which one feels somehow part of in a very, very real way. So solitude is not just about introspection, but it's about entering into a quiet, a silent, a reflective, a contemplative relationship with 
whatever is manifest to us on a retreat through our senses, through what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch and feel. Solitude allows, as it were, a greater um, engagement, a greater presence, a greater intimacy with the world that is manifest to us in the moments we spend being attentive and mindful and clear. But we also know that just to come on a retreat, just to go off into the mountains, um, is no guarantee uh, at all that we will um, find uh, what we might call a genuine solitude. A solitude in which we're no longer bedeviled by worries and anxieties and longings and fears and so on. One of the very earliest texts that are found in the, the Pali Canon um, is called the Atakavaga, the, the chapter of eights. And at the very beginning, we find a verse that says, the, the creature concealed inside its cell, a man sunk in dark passions, is a long, long way from solitude. In other words, we can go into a cell of a monastery or into a little hut in the forest and we can sit cross-legged on a cushion and we can introspectively peer into our own innermost feelings and thoughts and become completely lost and bogged down and depressed. And that's not solitude at least in the way it's being used here. Solitude is not um, uh, uh, just cutting oneself off from things, getting, getting somehow preoccupied with one's own dark interiority. There we've become somehow lost and, 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 and sunk uh, in something that would probably end up in a kind of depression or crisis. Another famous solitary in our own culture is, is, is Michel de Montaigne, who lived in 16th century France. Uh, he was a magistrate, a member of the Bordeaux Parliament, and about the age of 37-38, um, he retires to his estate uh, in the Perigord, not far from the town of Castillon, which is just up the road from where Martine and I live. And he too uh, built himself a little tower and lived there with his books on philosophy, with a chapel on the ground floor, with a priest who would come twice a day for mass, a little bedroom, which you can still see today. And he too began to reflect on what it meant to live in solitude, to, to, to cut his ties from 
his professional life and to retreat into his tower and then to retreat into himself, asking the question, qui suis-je? Who am I? And his essays are prolonged reflections on this one question. Who am I? Or as we'll see on this retreat, we're going to phrase that slightly differently. What is this? But Montaigne makes a similar point that we find in the Atakavaga and we find in fact in many uh, traditions that value solitude. He says, ambition, covetousness, irresolution, fear and desires do not abandon us just because we have changed our landscape. They often follow us into the very cloister and the schools of philosophy. Neither deserts nor holes, sorry, neither deserts nor holes in cliffs can disentangle us from them. That is why it is not enough to withdraw from the mob, not enough to go to another place. We have to withdraw from such attitudes of the mob that are within us. So this is kind of obvious in a way, and I suspect anyone who's been on a retreat before, which I think is pretty much everyone in this room, knows what Montaigne is talking about. You can set up the ideal retreat situation, but you can't uh, make a similarly uh, straightforward uh, elimination of all of those thoughts and worries and fantasies that preoccupy you. Montaigne is actually rather shocked by this. He thought it would be a walk in the park, as we say today. But in fact, he found that his mind was like a runaway horse with neither object nor plan. And it just sort of just bolted wherever it would. So solitude is not just about sitting in a retreat like here, but it's also finding a way to retreat from the voices of the mob within us, or what in Buddhism are called the hindrances or the obstacles. How do we create a solitary space, a solitude within our own minds, within our own consciousness? That's true solitude. In the early Buddhist text, they talk about uh, kaya viveka, which is physical solitude, and citta viveka, which is spiritual or mental solitude. And clearly it's the latter, spiritual solitude, that is the real thing. And the one, of course, that is not so easy to achieve. 
Montaigne um, likewise uh, commented on this point. He said, it would be madness to entrust yourself to yourself if you did not know how to govern yourself. There are ways of failing in solitude as there are in society. In other words, if you go off into solitude without any uh, skills or abilities to actually manage your own inner states of mind, you'd be crazy. You'd go nuts. So what he's referring to when he speaks of um, self-governance, this is a concept that comes from, uh, from Greek philosophy, the practical philosophy particularly of the Hellenists. What Montaigne was trying to do in the 16th century in France was to put into practice the philosophical Uh, traditions that had just been recovered after the Dark Ages. The the Renaissance, of course, being the rebirth of the Greek and Latin learning and wisdom that had sort of got forgotten and lost during the period of the Church's ascendancy. Montaigne was one of these men of that period who was a passionate humanist, recovering um, the wisdom of Greece and Rome that had been forgotten. But for Montaigne, it wasn't just a question of, of, of sort of intellectual curiosity. For him, as for the Greeks and Romans themselves, if you took these philosophies seriously, they had to do with learning how to govern yourself. Le gouvernance de soi. In in Buddhism, of course, this is familiar under other names like mind training or vinaya, simply discipline, inner discipline. So as we find on a retreat like this, it's not just enough to sit on the cushion and let your mind wander. But when we sit here and when we walk and when we practice in a place like this, we put into effect certain strategies, certain skills uh, like mindfulness or concentration or loving kindness or questioning or all of the different names of the various practices that you may have heard of are effectively all ways of learning how to govern ourselves, learning how to both recognize and understand and come to terms with what's going on within us and finding ways to, to free ourselves from their power the enormous power they have to spin us off into fantasies, into daydreams, into memories, into plans. And we become 
extraordinarily conscious of how potent these forces are and how endless they sometimes seem to be, how overwhelming they are. And that's what we work with. And at this point, whether you're doing a Buddhist or a Christian or a Sufi or a Taoist retreat really doesn't make much difference at all. You're working with the same raw materials of your own experience and you're just trying to get some handle on it all. That's self-governance. And as Montaigne says, there are ways of failing in solitude just as there are ways of failing in society. In other words, you know, there's no guarantee that we're going to, it's, going to, it's going to be effective. Zen is particularly good at this in pointing out that there's no guarantee that if you sit X number of hours on a cushion in a monastery that you will get a payoff. Hopefully you will. But if you don't apply yourself in a way that is effective, then you'll spend the whole time just wandering and drifting and getting bored. Pascal was also aware of this. And one of his most famous, um, sta one of his most fam famous uh, lines in his uh, Pensee, in his thoughts, all of humanity's problems, he said, stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. So in other words, our problems, according to Pascal, lie in the fact that we don't know how to dwell in solitude. We don't know how to manage our own interiority our own aloneness. And I wonder, in fact, if that is also um, because at some level we feel ill-equipped to deal with our, with our solitude. We're not trained at school to learn how to do that. It's kind of a taboo topic, or at least it was when I was young. Nowadays, mindfulness has got itself everywhere, so maybe it's different today. But I doubt somehow that the basic dilemma has really changed very much. And it also, I think, gives us a clue perhaps to why we find it so difficult to sit quietly in a room alone, which is really what we're going to be doing for the next week. We may not be physically alone, because there's other people doing it as well around us, but the fact is we might just as well be alone because we're not interacting at all. We're very much confronted with who we are. We've got nowhere to hide, except, of course, in pursuing thoughts and fantasies and so on, and we run off. We can't run away from the room, so we run away to rooms of our imagination and memory 
and so on. It's the same basic movement. It's a flight, an escape to be somewhere else. Body remains in the same place. Mind is off somewhere else. And why is it so difficult to sit quietly in a room? Why is something as apparently straightforward and non-complicated, such as watching your breath, why can't you do it? Why, after 10 or 15 seconds, does the mind hop onto some ridiculous train of thoughts that you're not really even terribly interested in? It's a very curious condition, I find, uh, to, to be human in this way. And even though we may have had very positive experience on, in meditation in the past, where we've really enjoyed ourselves, we've really valued it, so much so that we've decided to come back for more, even with that strong determination, that, that, that you know, the really positive motivation. Nonetheless, we sit down and we're on the merry-go-round again. Mind just races off. And I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that solitude exposes us to the very pulse of birth and death itself the very fact of being alive in this moment, dependent upon this breath, on this heartbeat, just to sit there with that, and implicitly to know how utterly fragile and tentative and temporary and uncertain this existence is. Solitude brings us into an undeniable recognition of our own mortality, of our own transience. And this is not any longer just some, 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 some concept or idea that we're reading in a book. We're actually feeling it in the very flesh of our existence. And that's not easy. It's much, it's, it's far more uh, manageable to run away into some train of thought or memory or whatever. We find the same thing in Chuang Tzu. Um, who was a Taoist teacher, probably a con roughly a contemporary with the Buddha, but living in China. Uh, and one of his rather pithy statements is, he who looks too hard at the outside gets clumsy on the inside. In other words, a life that's preoccupied with the affairs of the world, of what's going on around us, in our society, in our family, wherever we are, 
if, if that's where our attention is primarily focused, we're going to get, we're not going to develop the skills, we're going to be clumsy and inept at what it is we encounter when we close our eyes and sit still and confront our sheer existence. Solitude um, is something we're not really prepared for. And this again, clearly, this is, we've got now Chuangzi, the Buddha, Pascal, they're all saying the same thing. Montaigne, it's all exactly the same text, really. From very different sources, very different times in history. And it seems to point that you know, this situation doesn't really change. And I suspect that uh, for many of us here too, we can relate to what these people are saying. There's something sort of undeniably um, true about these reflections. We can see it for ourselves. We've experienced it for ourselves. And that's where we start. That's where the, the Buddha began. No doubt Jesus in the desert for 40 days was going through the same kind of thing. Or these secular figures too, like Thoreau, for example. There's something about our humanity that, in which we hear the call of solitude. Uh, there's something deeply seductive almost about the possibility of solitude, of being away from the, the craziness and the busyness and the pressures and the stress of our lives. There's a part of us that yearns to just sort of be away from all that. But when we get there, away from all that, we discover that we're actually got now to come to terms with something that's argu arguably even more difficult to cope with and manage. And that's what we're doing here. We're trying to come to terms with our solitude. We're trying to develop skills which will enable us to have some governance, control, uh, or another term that's also used in the Greek philosophies, um, to develop a care of the soul, to care for ourselves, to really care for ourselves, uh, inwardly, to develop this kind of, uh, almost a compassion for ourselves. So I'm going to leave us hanging at that point and um, in my next talk I'll, I'll continue along this uh, theme of solitude. But we have um, uh, some time now for any questions or reflections, comments on, on what I've been saying. Yeah. Um, it's like 
sorry, denarians? Oh, solitudinarians, yes. Solituders. Uh The ones I mentioned, that is true, were not. That solitude. Um, well, thank you for raising that. That is, a, is certainly a, a, an entirely valid point. Um, when you said, uh, I can understand why that's the case, I suspect you're referring to the fact that given the social and other conditions of those times, when women's roles would have been very much that of raising children and being, in a sense, primarily relegated to the domestic sphere, the opportunities would not really have been available. Oh, that's also true, yeah. No, that's definitely the case. Yeah, you may be right. Uh, well, it's obvious, you are right, obviously, because that's I clearly have only sought out male voices. Um, I could have actually, if I'd been more sensitive provided you with women's voices. And there are, in fact, um, one of the earliest collections of, um, of Buddhist poems um, are written, in fact, by women. The Terigata, the verses of the elder women. Um, and that's a remarkable text. Um, in fact, if I remember, I'll try to bring... when My next talk, I'll try to correct my, my paternalistic bias and read you some of those. And so the fact that they're elder women might have meant that they were done with their family. No, 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 that, that's not elder in that sense. Uh, Terry means elder in the Dharma. So these are, store, these are poems written by women who became nuns or who left home as young women they didn't necessarily even had been married and spent their life in solitude and contemplation and then wrote down their insights, much of which had to do with, isn't it wonderful not to have a bloke around? (laughs) That's a constant refrain. Isn't it great not to have to cook dinner? (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll make a point of bringing some in. But actually, one thing I was going to mention that I had in my notes that for some reason I skipped over. One of the most powerful images of solitude that that, that I know of are the paintings of Vermeer, Johannes Vermeer, and particularly his paintings of women. And the one that, to to me, the most poignant illustration of solitude is in um, The Milkmaid. You know that painting? Very famous painting of a, of a servant woman pouring a jug of milk into a bowl. And there's something about that image that can 
captures the essence of solitude for me. And again, it's not about someone who's being introspective. She's actually totally attuned to that very simple task of pouring milk. Again, you need to look at the picture, obviously. I can't put into words what Vermeer has painted. But also he did two paintings of women reading letters, which captured to me more powerfully than any other image in art I can think of, of what it is to be solitary, just in the way they hold the object, the way they reflect. A woman playing a piano, another one. They're all women. And interesting, his portraits of men are always outward-looking. They're not solitary. The, the, there's two paintings particularly. I forget the titles now. One is of a geographer and one is of something... Of, the Laughing Cavalier was Franz Hals, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, but yeah, the Laughing Cavalier would be a very unsolitary type image. So what you're suggesting is that if women do have less access to retreat, mm. solitary retreat, that they find those moments in their everyday Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the point I would make. And, and again, I think that can also be true of men as well. I, I want to actually get out of the idea that solitude means going off into a cave. Solitude, I think, is also present in all moments of life. Um, we'll probably come back to that. Anyway, thank you. Yes? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this is when, um, when you start looking into the literature on solitude, uh, these are the issues that immediately surface. Um, you're absolutely right. Solitude is thought of, broadly speaking, as desirable, as, 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 some, as something we, would, we think, think of as good. Whereas loneliness, for example, or aloneness... Um, is actually often thought of as one of, the, one of the most undesirable things. And if we think, for example, of somebody in solitary confinement, that's not really solitude, is it? Solitary confinement is pretty much the worst kind of punishment that can be inflicted on you short of the death sentence. So what's the difference between the person in solitary confinement and the hermit in solitude? One is a punishment. Well, choice clearly plays a role. Choice clearly plays a role because people don't choose to be in solitary confinement. But uh, it's choice. It's also, I think, to do with a, a lack of freedom. And um, in one of the things I've been reading recently... Um, there's a beautiful account of a, of a person called the Birdman of Alcatraz. You heard of him? He was um, some guy who killed a couple of people and ended up being imprisoned for life in Alcatraz. And he, was, he spent 20 or 30 years in solitary confinement. 
But what he managed to do was to turn, was to, was to utilize the minimal amount of freedom he had to transform his confinement into a positive experience of solitude. And he did this by starting to care for the little birds that dropped out of the nest and fell on the, his, his window ledge. And then he started caring for them. And he became, in the end, actually a, 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 some kind of world-renowned expert on the behavior of little birds. So he transformed that situation. So solitary confinement is a punishment, but it still has a tiny degree of, 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 of freedom in which you can create a meaningful life. But generally speaking, no, it's a situation none of us would think of as a good thing. So I think it's the loss of freedom. It's very, you know, you think of all of the horrible things people underwent in Auschwitz and these places. A lot have had to do with being shut off from other people. But it wasn't solitude. Um, and loneliness too. Lone loneliness, you feel deeply alone, but it's painful because you, 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 you feel as though you're deprived of company, deprived of friendship, deprived of love. So that's not solitude either. So solitude is not about isolation. Like a lot of these ideas, when we first hear them, we think, oh, that sounds nice. But when you start probing into what, what, what it means to experience solitude, it gets very, 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 mud, mud, it gets very muddy very quickly. It's very difficult to tease it apart. I don't have a problem with that. I wouldn't say it's a definition. Uh, I, I, don't, I hope I didn't present it as a definition, but it's certainly a much reported uh, feature of the life of people who are living lives of sol solitude. Um, it, it, the, the key with solitude is not that it's in disengagement from the natural world, but it's a disengagement from other people from commerce with other people. That's what marks it out as solitude. It's not about cutting off all connectivity. Uh, it's about cutting off a certain kind of connectivity. And that's exactly what we do in a place like this. And yet, yet, yet yesterday we spoke about, you know, you don't speak and you don't have, to, don't have email and texting. and You're cutting yourself off from human contact in order to achieve the basic conditions to start working on your solitude. Um, but as we know from possibly just today, uh, this hasn't diminished our sense of being part of nature, enjoying the sounds and smells and tastes and all, if anything, all of those things are then intensified. They become even more present. And I, to me that is an in, integral part of the experience of solitude. Yes? I have a question. I want to ask about your own practice when you're meditating. Uh -huh. How do you distinguish between meaningful self-inquiry and a 
um, well, the runaway horse type experience is one in which I very quickly lose any kind of self-awareness. I, 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 I'm aware perhaps, perhaps of being on a kind of a roll with some really juicy idea, but before I know it, it's actually taken, it's deprived me of my awareness, really. I've, I, I kind of just disappear. And then at a certain point, let's say Martin hits that stick, then I jolt back into, oh, here I am. And I might have a dim residual awareness of having had some really interesting thoughts, but actually often they've more or less faded out by that point. I think the difference is basically the presence or absence of consciousness. I mean, if you are running, if you're taken off by a runaway horse and you stay fully present and aware of that, it's no longer a problem. It only becomes a problem when it deprives you of your capacity to be present and aware with what is going on. That's the difference. And so you can be, you know, in a very contemplative, present state of mind, aware of all of the chaos that's erupting in your mind. All of the, the, the desires and the fears and the emotions and the worries. Seeing them for what they are. That's the difference. It's when, if you have them rather than they have you, that's the difference, really, I would say. But of course, we also find moments where, you know, we're sort of sit sitting on the fence, you know. Well, this is a really interesting idea. God, this is a really positive, very promising fantasy has just popped up. <laughs> Do I follow it? <laughs> Or do I say, do I let it go? Those moments are very, I find very interesting to examine. And to try to catch yourself at the moment where you lose it. Or you allow yourself, well, we'll just stay with this one for a couple more minutes. <laughs> Next thing you know, the, the stick has been hit again. <laughs> Okay, we must stop here. Thank you. Um, we'll start again at uh, 8.45. Oh, one more question. Um, someone asked if we could um, say more about the bowing. And while I've got you all seated here, I'll do more than tell you about it. I will show you. Um, as Martine was was saying, we don't expect everyone to do this. If you feel any kind of uncomfortableness about bowing before Buddha statues, then don't bother. But if you wish to join us in this, we're following a very simple uh, set of movements that uh, you find in all the Buddhist traditions, but they're all slightly different, and we use the Korean ones. And so we start with a half bow, with three strikes of clack, 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 half. Then we come up again, and then clack. We go down. Clack. We go down. 
clack. And then something strange happens. There's a, a double clack, and that we raise our hands. Don't ask me why. That's what they do. <laughs> and then clack, 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 half bow to end. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, this is just, this is just what, yes, you do. Oh, okay. There we go. An explanation. Gosh, I've seen 30 years I've been doing that, and only now do I realize what <laughs> <laughs> However you want to interpret it. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, what, what I'm not sure is, what am I, am I doing it to something? Am I doing it to someone? Uh-huh. Or something or someone? What's it all about? Yeah. Um, well, I think Martine tried to explain that. One thing we're not doing is, is bowing before a golden Buddha image. The, the Buddha image is just it's a symbol, and it's a symbol for being awake. And that is something that we believe to be a capacity of all human beings. So we're effectively honoring, through these gestures, our own and others' capacity to be awake. We're paying homage to being awake. And when we light the candle and the incense and the, offer the water, we're basically using those as symbols that what we see, what's illuminated by the light, the beautiful scent of the incense or beautiful sensory enjoyment of anything, and water, which is of course necessary for life, we're symbolically offering these things to becoming awake. So we turn everything in our sense experience, in what we eat, as, as ways to refine and enhance our own capacity to be more awake. So that, that, that would be how we explain it. But um, in some ways, in, in, some, in some ways, it's nice to get the explaining mind out of the way. And that's one of the reasons I like bowing, actually, is because we don't have to rationalize why we're doing it. And after a while, it just becomes a bodily gesture that has a sort of a felt meaning. Now, of course, it is going back to a tradition that's alien to our own. We don't do this really, in, certainly in modern secular culture. But to me, it has it continues to resonate with something meaningful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.